Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We are here to keep you up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed you. Now, let's take a quick look ahead and spoil everything we're about to cover. First off, we have the management of bronchiolitis. It's still to do as little as possible. Second, doxycycline could be used as monotherapy for community-acquired pneumonia. Then, practice patterns are mixed for infants with hypothermia. After that, there's a safer alternative to vancopiptazo. Could this dethrone the beloved antibiotic regime that we know and love, which is, of course, vancopiptazo? And then lastly, don't bother with the sterile field. You might be wasting your time. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you're just not getting the entire Journal Feed podcast experience, and you're not getting all of the articles that we've covered from the past week. Don't worry, I'm going to pick the best ones for you guys, but still, either way, you could be getting full access to both the podcast and the blog, but to do that, you have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, where remember, if money is a barrier, then just reach out to us and we will help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by Andy Hogan, Gabby Leonard, Vivian Lay, Seth, Walt Blackmore, Nicholas Sreika, and Clay Smith. Okay, so we're going to jump straight to the third article. Titled, Variability in Emergency Department Management of Hypothermic Infants Less Than 90 Days of Age, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So fever, we all know is scary, but we also know that hypothermia could be a response to infection in infants. A little while ago, we covered a paper that showed that somewhere between 3 and 5% of hypothermic infants had serious bacterial infections. Now, despite that, we don't have protocolized or standardized management pathways for these infants like we do for febrile infants. This paper sought to highlight the inconsistency in treatment of this presentation. So these authors did a retrospective cross-sectional study of infants less than 90 days old presenting to the emergency department with hypothermia over a 10-year period. That made up nearly 8,000 patients divided into three groups by their age. Less than 30 days old, 31 to 60 days old, and 60 to 90 days old. 80% of the infants included were less than 30 days old, and they had significantly higher rates of positive cultures, HSV testing, and antibiotic and or antiviral treatment. Older infants had significantly higher rates of RSV and influenza testing. They had more chest x-rays, more ICU admissions, and higher mortality. Interestingly, the rates of CRP and procalcitonin testing increased significantly from 2009 to 2019, despite there being no real evidence to guide their use in this situation. I'd say it's pretty fair to do, though, because in the lack of evidence, well, you kind of got to lean on the other evidence, and we're certainly sending off these inflammatory markers for febrile infants. What I think is the most interesting about the study is the variability between sites in terms of testing and treatment. Urine cultures were sent anywhere between 60 and 90% of the time. That's a huge variability. Similar differences were seen in blood cultures, CBCs, and giving antibiotics. Now then, all this data was based on ICD-9 and 10 codes, so there's definitely some inaccuracy that's just kind of built in there. I wonder what drives this practice variation, though. I'd guess that it's not that difficult to sort of explain away some mild hypothermia in a cold emergency department, but if they have a fever, well, you can't deny that, and you can't just send those kids home. Okay, in a spoonful, infant hypothermia could signal serious disease, but again, it's not clear how often from this study. What is clear, though, is that there's definitely inconsistent approaches to, to this presentation. 
Okay, and then a quick hop over to the last article, the fifth article. Titled Non-Sterile Gloves and Dressing versus Sterile Gloves, Dressing and Drapes for Suturing of Traumatic Wounds in the Emergency Department, a Non-Inferiority Multi-Center Randomized Control Trial out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. I remember back in medical school being taught how to suture at laceration for the first time. We had to drape non-sterile gloves, carefully prepare our sterile field. It was labor-intensive, super tedious, and perfect sterility was kind of hard to maintain. Does all that effort really make a difference? If not, then personally, I'd avoid it. And it's much faster and cheaper if you don't, not to mention the wound that you're suturing isn't sterile to begin with. This trial was a multi-center, single-blinded, randomized trial done in the Netherlands. They wanted to assess non-inferiority of using non-sterile gloves and dressing for the laceration repair done in the emergency department compared with using sterile materials. Now, all wounds were still cleaned as usual, and patients had to agree to return to the emergency department for suture removal and wound inspection. They had a total of 1,500 patients who were enrolled and a great follow-up rate of 91%. The wound infection rate was 6.8% in the sterile group. And get this, 5.7% in the non-sterile group, which meant that this was definitely going to meet its criteria for non-inferiority. It bears mentioning that the trial was stopped early, and this was a little bit underpowered, but they still had quite a few patients. This concords well with other studies which have drawn similar conclusions that doing a whole sterile prep is not necessarily beneficial. My personal practice is not to drape a sterile field. Of course, all my tools are sterile, and my suture is sterile, um, but that's about it. I will occasionally put on sterile gloves if I think that manual manipulation of the wound is necessary or if I have to go digging in there to get out some kind of foreign body. Also, sterile gloves are just better fitting and more comfortable, so that's a plus. In a spoonful, no stress for the sterile field for emergency department laceration repairs. It won't change your infection rates. All right, let's do our wrap up. What did we cover today? Third, there's a huge amount of practice variation for dealing with infant hypothermia. And finally, from the fifth article, I do love seeing research that supports practices I already do. I know that's a bad practice. Now, sterile procedure for emergency department laceration repair does not reduce wound infection rates. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a nice little nugget of space repetition. Now, if you're feeling some FOMO, you'd like to hear more of the podcast, you'd like to be part of the blog and get the newsletter, well, then you'll have to join us at the members feed. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.